You are the one that's designated to reveal to us the plans, the purpose, and the will of God concerning our lives. So we welcome you. Thank you for the confirmation of your word. Thank you for breaking open the seals of the word of God. We invite you now. We thank you. We bless you that you give your people a refreshing from the presence of God. Thank you, Father God. We bless your name. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Everyone is welcome tonight uh, on this fourth installment of our teachings on the gospel of grace. Uh, we thank God for the privilege to bring this message and we pray that God will open all of our ears and our eyes that we will see the incredible glory of the Lord Jesus through these messages. Amen. Amen. So last night, I, uh, on Monday night actually, I began to establish the profile of a life that's lived out in grace. And that's been my objective all week. To help us to see that from the cradle to the grave, we have been called to live by grace through faith. Uh, a lot of times when we hear a message, and in particular this message of the gospel of grace, uh, we want to relegate it to something as a doctrine, as a curriculum, as, or, or we may selectively choose certain aspects of it to live out. But I wanted us to know that the gospel of grace works and is effective when we understand that it's a system of living and it's a lifestyle. And in saying that, it works in the church, it works at home, it works at work, and it works in our businesses, and it works across all of our relationships. The gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus. So we use the example of Joseph as a profile. Just so we see that what we are saying is not something that's far-fetched, but that it's in fact the gospel of God's grace, the Jesus lifestyle is a lifestyle that's available and can be lived. And we saw it lived out in and through the life of Joseph. Several things we said about Joseph, and I'm going to move very quickly because I want to get into new material tonight. Several things we said about him. Number one, he knew he was loved by God. In this case, by his father. And he knew that because not only did the father love him, the father gave him a coat of many colors. And that coat was a reminder to him of his father's love. And I said to us that that coat for us, for me and you, is symbolic of our righteousness. The gift of righteousness that God's given us is a proof, positive evidence that God loves us. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't ask him for it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. And yet, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he gives us this gift, that gift of righteousness. Amen? We said he lived a holy life. He had a relationship with God, intimate relationship with God. Uh, he was industrious. He walked. Uh, 
He was a great example of a man uh, who not only impacted his local environment, but the world around him. Uh, we said it was a man that lived a gracious life in that not only did he forgive his brothers, he made sure he took care of them. You know, when I mentioned that last night and the night before, you know, one point I forgot to, to make about Joseph's ability to forgive. Do you know or can you imagine that after he became number two in command in Egypt, Potiphar was still a general to, to, to Pharaoh? Think about that. Potiphar, the man that put him in jail, may have st still be alive. And Joseph is now in number two position. If you are Potiphar, you want to avoid Joseph. <laughs> but what still? Potiphar's wife. But because Joseph had no vindictive bone in him, it did not matter. It did not matter. Because all of them were forgiven completely. Now, there was one more factor about Joseph that I did not mention yet, but I'll save that maybe later on to tonight because it will fit perfectly as we move on. So tonight, let's just move forward. Let's talk about how do we live by God's grace. We know how Joseph did it, or rather we saw Joseph live through it. Now, for me and you in 2019 going forward, how can we live by the grace of God? Oh, man. Yesterday, I mean, even for me, uh, you know, as you prepare to, to, to give these messages, you, you, you get some things yourself. Because we, we, we settled many things last night about the issue of adversity and what we can learn and how we can live through that. So tonight, let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, in the uh, NLT, please, from verse 6 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Thank you. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry, please note this, that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far, oh, I'm sorry, oh yeah, yeah, there's far there, a far, I thought maybe I'm making it up. <laughs> You know, sometimes these things, are, you, just, you just say it anyway. So I thought maybe I'm making it up. But a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Think about those key words. Superior. Far better covenant based on better promises. Need we need to say anything else? Why will I want to keep the old when God is promising me something that is superior, that is far better covenant, that is based on better promises? I think the challenge for many of us is we really don't understand what the superiority of it is, or do we don't really understand why it's a far better covenant, nor do we understand the fact that it's based on better promises. But that's what we have. Verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. 
But when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant would not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back to them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hair, on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people, go on. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor they need to teach their, their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again Remember their sins. Verse 13. When God speaks of a new covenant, in case you don't understand what it means, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Now, you will think that this is so clear that you and I should be aspiring to live under the new covenant that Jesus has now cut for us. But it is amazing for, that for many of us, again, this is just a mind. Uh, we, we, we have the understanding of this in our mind, but it's never really transferred into our hearts. So this is the deal. Every born again believer has two options of living under the law or under grace. And both options have consequences. Think about that. All of us, as born-again believers, we have two options. We can choose to live under the old covenant, or we can choose to live under the new covenant. But that choice carries with it great consequences. Now, if I live a lot of grace, I live a life of lots of grace, and I just have a tiny, itty, little, bitty law with it. Plenty of grace, tiny, little, bitty, teeny, bitty law. The equation is equal to law. Think about it. If I live a whole lot of law, but live a tiny little bitty, 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 tiny little grace, the answer, the equation there is still law. Mixtures don't cut it. Mixtures don't cut it. We have to understand that. Now, I said we have two options. God's desire and his best for you and I is to live under the current covenant that he has got in his son, Jesus Christ, the covenant of grace. But for those of us that's contemplating, that says, you know what? I've been living in the law for a while and it, you know, it's, 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 you know, I, I just like it. Let me go to the scriptures for us 
in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5 through 7. Why should I make the transition? And Jesus said it very well. Uh, he said that no one, having drunk the old wine, when you bring the new wine to them, and they taste the new wine, and they say, no, man, the old is better. That's what's happened to many of us. If you've been used to, be, to being fed a regular staple or diet that you've become familiar with and you've been used to, when they bring something new, the chances are you say, you what? Let me go back to the old. I prefer the old. The new, yeah, okay, that's, that's good, but let, let me deal with what I know, what I'm familiar with. Jesus actually said that. Given the choice of the new wine and old wine, if you taste the old first, people will make the choice and say, you know what? I'll keep the old. And that's what's happened to many of us. So we have two options. We can live under the law or under the grace. Jeremiah 17 verse 5. For those of us who are contemplating living under the law. Let me just say this to you. Let me say this to all of us. God is so incredible in his grace and in his, in his, in his soul. The large, largeness of God's heart is just incredible. Because there are some of us that know people that live under the law. We say, well, their life is all right. I mean, you know, they're, they're not doing badly. I know they're not. You know why? The Bible says God reigns on the just and the unjust. He reigns on the just and the unjust. In fact, you don't have to be born again to do all right. Why? Because God reigns on the just and the unjust. He just didn't tell you what size rain you are getting. He reigns on the just and the unjust. Amen? Amen. Jeremiah 17 verse 5. I'm going to qualify all of that in a minute. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. That's all law right there. Whoever fits this is all living in the law. Why? Because that's, 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 that's what the law is made of. The law or the old covenant has to do with my performance, me trusting in myself, me trusting my efforts, me trusting my own righteousness, me trusting in me and others like me. So God is saying through Jeremiah, cursed is any man or woman, go back to that verse 5 please, who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. In other words, you are looking for results through human sources. Whose heart departs from the Lord. Now, next verse, verse 6. This is going to be the result of living under the law. I told you we have two options. We can live under the law or under grace. If you choose to live under the law, this is what's going to happen. For he or she shall be like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see when good comes. But shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. In a salt land which is not inhabited. Ma, 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 ma. Now, watch this. Go back to that verse 6 again. The result of living under the law, oh, you are alive, you're like a shrub. You're not dead. But you are alive like a shrub in the desert. 
Since when do we get tomatoes out of this desert that you can eat? Or watermelon, or oranges, or apples? The desert is a desolate place. Shrubs grow there, but they can't give any life. They, they are not useful for anything. Are you hearing what I'm saying? People exist, but they just barely exist. Number two point. You shall not see when good comes. Wow. That is the main reason why we pray. That God will open the eyes of our understanding so we'll see where the good that God has for us is available. So the Bible is telling me and you that living under the law, even when good is around you, you won't see it. You won't see it. This is the reason we pray. We pray for God to open our eyes. God, where's my source? God, where are the things you provided for me? God, where is my blessing? Where's my favor? Show me, lead me, guide me to it. But when I'm living under the law, you will not see when good comes. Why? Because you are so vested in your natural human resources. You're calling this one, I'm calling that one, looking for man and woman to, make, to bring the connection to place. But shall inhabit the patched places in the wilderness. That's a no good place. Patched place, a place that's dry. Again, a place where nothing grows. And the last one is salt land which is not inhabited. This is no place for anybody to want to be. Are, are you following me tonight? None of us should want to live under this condition. No, when it has for us better promises, better covenant, a superior covenant. Amen? Okay, let's move on. So we have two options. Option A is to live under the law. It brings death. And option two is to live under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 11, let's go there for a minute. And I want to talk to, I'm, I'm talking tonight on how do we live by God's grace. Deuteronomy 9, 11. How, oh, I'm sorry. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me two tablets of stone the tablets of the covenant. So right here, we are establishing the connection between the law and the old covenant. So Moses is speaking and he's telling us that he received two tablets of stone and he connects that with, to us, he connects that for us by calling those two tablets of stone the tables or tablets of the covenant. So we know that when we mention the old covenant and we talk about the law they are one and the same. The law and the old covenant is one and the same. Moses brought that for Israel. Amen? Amen. John 1, 17. John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this is a huge statement that is being made here. And this statement sets up for us the contrast between the law of Moses, which we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 9, versus the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law came through Moses, but grace 
and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, here we have an option. We have a choice. The law came. But grace is also here. Which one are you going to choose? Because these two covenants are contrasting covenants. They are contrasting, and both of them are a way of living. So now, let, 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 me, just, let me just take this journey a little further. A little. So the law came through Moses, and of course, grace came through, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, what is the law all about? Why did God give the law? What good is the law? What purpose was it for? We are told in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy, it is just, and it is good. Okay? Romans 7, verse 12. The law is holy, the law is just, and the law is good. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. I think they're having some issues with the uh, system. Okay? Now, it is, I, 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 I'm going somewhere with this because I, I, we throw, we throw that, that thing out there, the law, the law, the law. I don't want you to think that God gave something at some point that was supposed to be det- detrimental. It's important we understand that. God didn't give something to kill people or to injure people or to wound people. No, that's not, that's not the thing. So the Bible, ex- this is in the New Testament. The Bible says, therefore the law is holy. It was and still is. And the commandment holy, just and good. It's important we see that. And the reason God wants me you to know that is because we must understand the purpose for which it was given. When you, when you look at the law and compare it with the purpose for which it was given, you say, yes, he did his job. Very, very important. What was the law? What, 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 what was it? What, 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 what's holy and just about it? Well, the law can be summarized in two phrases. I'm teaching tonight, so just, you guys just, <laughs> let me just establish this, okay? The law can be summarized in two phrases. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Give that to me, please. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Ah, wonderful, thank you. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Two main points about the law. This is the first one. The first one is be holy. Everything about the law speaks to us of the character and holiness of God. That's why Paul can say the law is holy, it's just, and it's good. Amen? Amen. We find the same scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Just so I can give you the New Testament. Here you go. Because it is written, be holy, for I'm holy. Amen? Amen? Everything about the law is to reveal to me and you the holy 
righteousness of God. So the first message of the law is holiness. Then there's a second message of the law. We find this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Matthew 5, verse 48. Thank you. Man, that was quick. <laughs> now, you get me used to this quickness, then when you slow down, it's a serious problem. <laughs> it's like I'm comparing old wine with new wine. <laughs> Therefore, you shall be perfect. When Jesus gave, when he said this, it was under the law. Okay? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So there are two major things that the Lord tells us. Number one, be holy. And number two, be perfect. Both of these things reveal to us that the standard for this perfection is the perfect character of God. Now, are you guys following me so far? The law is holy. The law is just. The law is good. And the law speaks two primarily, two primary messages. Number one, be holy. And number two, be perfect. We have a problem. There is nobody that can be holy and no one that could be perfect when this law was given. It's not possible. So then why did God give it? Why is he telling us to be holy and be perfect when it was virtually, absolutely impossible for anyone to be perfect or holy? Are you following what I'm saying? Let's go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now, it's important for me to establish this because you hear so much, the law, the law, the law, I'm not under the law, I'm not under the law. And if we're not careful, we almost want to we almost want to uh, uh, convict God and say, God, why will you give us something that's imperfect? Why, why, why did you introduce the law? Why? We must understand the mind of God when he gave that law to understand the purpose for which he gave it. Okay? Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So for you that want to be under the law, that don't want to accept grace, you must understand what, you, what you're saying. You need to understand what you're signing up for. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What does that mean? God gave this set of laws that screaming, be holy, be perfect. Nothing short of perfection will satisfy, satisfy the claims of heaven, the claims of God's justice. Nothing short of perfection and holiness. But God knows that no one can fulfill those things. He said, yes, I know. But I gave it anyway. Why? Because I want the mouth of the world. After they've tried and sweat 
and fasted and prayed and have their 19 rules why they will not go to uh, the disco. Uh, 19 reasons they cannot listen to rap music. And after they put all these things up, at the end of the day, they do 18, but they still fail on number 19. So when they've worked themselves up and, and tried and tried and tried and each time they try, they fail. Each time they try, they fail. Each time, then I will have all the world is guilty. Isaiah tried it, he couldn't make it. Jeremiah tried, he couldn't make it. Ezekiel tried, he couldn't make it. Daniel tried, he couldn't make it. Even old Abraham tried, he couldn't make it. None of the saints of the Old Testament, no one that tried, could ever satisfy the holy requirements of God. No human being could ever do it. God said, I want the whole world to, of their own, come to a conclusion. I tried, but I failed. Because I am the measure, the standard by which holiness is measured. This is my standard. I am the standard of holiness. And when I measured every man against my standard, you come short. Now I can tell you, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because the standard for my perfection and the standard for holiness is not bank, it's not Abraham, it's not Isaiah, it's not Jeremiah. It is God. So when you think you've done very well, because you fasted for three days, Ah, man, I've done well. God puts you right against his standard and says, measure yourself. You, you just, you crawl away from the measurement and say, God, please leave me alone. So he gave that standard to every man, whether you're in the north, the south, the east, or the west, wherever you find yourself, the same standard. You say, yes, God, okay. Yes, there's none that is good. No, there's not that it's any good. So number one, he gave this law that is holy, that is just, that is good, so everybody can be confined to the same conviction. You know, in the United States, we have one of the best judiciary systems. We do. I, I, hear, I, hear, I, hear, I hear the protest. I hear. <laughs> Listen, I didn't, say the, I didn't say the perfect system. I said one of the best. One of the best. One of the best. It's not perfect, but it's one of the best. All of you guys that were laughing, if you went to try on some of the places where you came from, You, you know the outcome before you even step into court. <laughs> in this United States, we have one of the best judiciary systems in the world. But even at that, even at that, we see two people commit the same offense. One guest is smacking, the other one is pulling iron for 7, 9, 10, 15 years. Why? Because that's a system that man made. It's not equitable. It's not always uh, uh, justifying across the board. But what God did with the law, 
If you are in Saudi Arabia, you read it, it's the same. If you are in Australia, you read it, it's the same. If you are in Germany, you read it, it's the same. And it's only one God. It's the only standard of measurement. So he confined the entire world into a guilty plea. I'm guilty. That's number one. To show you how great God is, he didn't just leave us in a condition where we just say, I'm guilty. What next? What do I do? I'm guilty. What, what's, what, what's the next thing? That, no, he didn't leave that. The Bible tells us, he gave the law. Secondly, to become a schoolmaster that will lead me and you out of that worthless, uh, useless place of guilt and bring us to a place where we can be totally, completely vindicated, educated, and justified. So the law is holy, is just, is good. It confines the whole world, we just read in Romans 3, 19, onto a guilty plea. But secondly, it became a schoolmaster or a tutor that holds me and you by the hand and says, yeah, you were wrong yesterday. Yeah, you were wrong last week. But don't give up. Come on. Come on. Keep on walking. Keep on walking. Keep on walking. Because in a while, I'm going to bring you to the Lamb of God. I'm going to lead you to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. Because now when you get to this Lamb, the perfect demand of the law that Abraham, Isaiah, Joseph, uh, Jacob, none of them could fulfill, this Lamb of God fulfilled it. And instead of trusting yourself to please God, trust Jesus who has already pleased him. And God will just change the equation. He will credit you for what Jesus has done as if you did it. Do you understand? So the law is just. It's holy. It's good. The only problem was nobody can fulfill it. Until Jesus came. It was the perfect lamb of God in whom they could find no fault. Because the way the law was written, if you fulfilled all of them but missed one, you are guilty in all. You are guilty in all. But Jesus perfectly obeyed every judge and every title of that law. Matthew 5, 17 tells us that. He fulfilled the law and therefore, when you and I trust in him, we are now credited with his perfect obedience. That's the difference between the law and living under the open heavens of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Wow, the time is flying. Verses 8 and 9. Okay. Even though I said to you at the beginning that we have an option to live under the law, under grace, I said that with some kind of sarcasm. The advice is nobody should want to live under the law. No one. Because the law was not made for believers. In fact, we don't have time to dig into all of it. The law was given primarily to Israel, just one nation. It was not given to Egypt. It was not given to the Philistines. None of that. Just Israel. Why? Because God chose the Israelites 
as an experimental nation. Amen? So first what it says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Go ahead. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Once you become the righteousness of God, the law is not made for you. Because the law, by composition, has to do with human self-performance. All the things I must do, you must do, in order to appease God, in order to earn favor with God. The essence of Jesus' coming was so that he, having received the favor, can live that favor out and through your life. So the law is not for a righteous person. Who is the law for? But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and mothers of mothers, for manslayers. How many manslayers do we have here in the house tonight? <laughs> None of us want to live under the law. Absolutely not. Amen? I don't forget what I said to you at the beginning. A lot of grace plus a little law is still the law. And a lot of law plus a little grace is still the law. So just change your disposition and begin to trust God. So Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law. So the question now tonight is how do we live by grace? How? Now, let, let, let me just say this so we can see the incredible wisdom of God. So now that grace is in operation, does that mean that God has suspended the law? Let, let, let me hear my professors here to answer that question. Now we live under grace. Does it mean that God has suspended the righteous demands of the law? No! Very smart. If I had it, if I have enough two dollars, I'll give everybody a two dollar bill. No, this is important. You get this. The righteous demand of the law is still in effect. That's why sinners will die and they go to hell, because the wages of sin was death. Is death will continue to be death. So the righteous demand of the law is still in effect. So now, if that be the case, how do I, you and I, who are now living in Christ, under grace, how do we escape the law and the demand of it? Thank you. Jesus. The moment you got born again, you must understand what happened. Paul broke it down for us in the book of Romans beautifully. God placed you in Christ. I mean, when Jesus died, he died as me and you. Which means when Jesus died, he paid the price as us. Because the wages of sin is death. That's why he had to die. Because if that did not happen, Satan will say to God, you rigged it. Satan will have a point to accuse God and say, you said in your own law that the wages of sin is death. How come these guys are not dead? 
So God had to find a way to make sure that the judgment stands. So Jesus had to die because he had the ability to also come back from the dead. So when he died, we died in him. And when he rose, we rose together with him. And how many of you understands that there cannot be double jeopardy? I can only be sentenced once for my crime. If the wages of sin are dead, it's death. And Jesus died, and I died with him, which means the price is paid. You can't sentence me twice. It's done. So in Christ Jesus, the law is fulfilled and we get the benefit of it. That's what happened when we got born again. And now God says, keep on living like that. Keep on living a life of total dependence on Jesus. Just as you are justified, which means the debt was canceled. You are acquitted. The case is dismissed. You are free. Now keep on living freely. And the way you do that is not to go back and try to do it yourself. Let him live his life through you. Because the righteous demand of the law still holds. The only reason you and I don't have to pay for it now is because Jesus did it. And when he did it, you said, I believe it, I accept it. And God says, good, I graft you, I graft you into it. So now how do I live this life now? How do I live a consistent daily life of grace. Like we saw Joseph. How do I keep living, believing, knowing that God loves me? How do I keep on living a lifestyle of holiness, discipline, integrity? How do I keep living a life of forgiveness and forgiving others? How? How do I do that on a daily basis? How do I live a life that's a life of great commission, where my life is impacting my environment and impacting everywhere I go? How? How do I live on a daily basis? This way, this way the rubber meets the road. But the answer is very simple. We touched on it a little bit on Sunday morning. So let me just give it to you now. Number one. I said it on Sunday. Humility. Humility admits our comprehensive need for God to walk in our lives. And I'm going to break that down. Go, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Mm. Let's start from verse 4. I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. For our sufficiency is from God. Give that to me in the NLT. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. This is our problem. God is always the last resort. I tried my own way. It didn't work. I go to Brother Tunda, I said, please help me. It didn't work. I go to Brother Charles, I said, please help me. It didn't work. I go to Dr. Anofi, I said, please help me. It didn't work. I go to 11 different people, it didn't work. I said, ah, yeah, there's a God. Oh, yes. 
Paul said it is not that we think we are qualified. This is our problem. May, listen, we don't say that with our lips. We, we say it with our actions. God is nowhere near our point of reference when it comes to decision making. We don't even consider there's a God. Come on. I'm in America. I have credit cards. I'm going to go to the to, to, uh, before drive, all those car lots. Is it Audi I want? Is it Porsche? Is it Kia? Is it Hyundai? I have a good credit score, 805. Get the car, let's go. And then we get home and say, oh, God bless the car. Really? <laughs> we have the means. We don't need God. Listen, 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 listen. Mahatma Gandhi, he, he read the Bible cover to cover, was moved with the person of Jesus Christ. He said, my God, the Christians have something. He was so moved, he came to Los Angeles. He said, listen, I've read this thing now. Now I want to meet a Christian. He went to church after church after church after church in California. Grabbed his head. He said, my goodness, this is a fraud. He said, I've met Jesus, but I've not met a Christian. I've not met the Christ of the church. I went back to India. I said, it can't be true. And turn India over to this huge Hindu, Hindu religion. Why? He could not find any semblance, semblance of the Christ read in the Bible in any one he met. Because in America, they don't need God. That was his conclusion. America does not need God. We make our own gods. Humility. James, you don't have to go there, don't go there, but I can just quote it for you. I can give it to you. James chapter 4, verse 6. The Bible says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me tell you how this works out in real life. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I know time is almost gone. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Let me show you how this works in real life, where you can go out and use it tomorrow. Begin from verse 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord. He prayed. Watch this now. Now, to give you the context, Jehoshaphat is a powerful king in Israel. Five nations have come against him to fight against Judah. And this is what he did. O oh Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? He's having a conversation with God. Next verse. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction 
and you hear and save? And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Verse 11. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession. Mm, my goodness. Which you have given us to inherit. Verse 12. Now, this is the humility part. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. Even if we had the power, we do not know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. This is the point of humility. Acknowledging before God, like Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, that our sufficiency is not from ourselves. God, I'm having problems at work. My boss is overbearing. He does not understand. I don't understand. God, I cannot deal with this, but I know you created him or her. Will you give me the wisdom in knowing how to deal with this situation? Because God is out of my hand. I can't deal with it. It's killing me. That's humility. You're having a conversation with God and you're acknowledging in and through that that this situation is beyond you. Because humility is total, absolute, complete dependence on God as your resource. But we hardly do that. We have failed to understand a critical element in God's kingdom. And it's equal. Please go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me show you this. I may not get to the second point tonight. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Paul, talking about how 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Give me verse 8. Verse 8. Concerning this thing, I played with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He had an issue, and he prayed about it three times. God, take this in the way. Verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, don't miss the next sentence. And I pray that God will help us to catch this. My grace, my ability, my power is sufficient for you. Why is that, Paul? For my strength is made perfect in weakness. The problem is, we don't want to be weak. And as long as you are not weak, God cannot get involved. Because if he gets involved, you will say, you did it. So he says, you know what? I just sit down like Pastor IBK, sick, uh, sip me a pina colada. I'll let you wear yourself out when you are tired and you are ready for me to get involved. Then I can get involved. Why? Because my glory I will share with no one. 
my strength is only made perfect in weakness. But you will not be weak. Because they have said to us, if a man is weak, ah, that's not a man. No. You better check him very well. Is he wearing his huh? or is he skirt? So you think you have to be macho. You have to, you have to, you have to show strength. Ah, come on, who's going on there? I'm in charge here. No. Let's read on a little bit. Watch what Paul said. <laughs> Watch what, what Paul said. He said, my strength is made perfect witness. When Paul heard that, when God told him, Paul, my strength is only made perfect in weakness. Eh? Is that the way you operate God? Ah! In that case, therefore, most godly, I will rather boast in my infirmities <laughs> that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Yes, yes, yes. I'm telling you guys, man, we, we, we don't get it yet. Give me verse 10. Look at what it says. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In other words, I will champion my own weaknesses. I will let the whole world know, listen, man, I, I, I'm so, man, I'll tell you, man, I can't, I can't deal with it. I'm weak, my reproaches, but, man, people that self deprecate themselves. You, you ever hear them? We laugh, but that's real strength. When I first met this man, Dr. Nofiok, I will never forget it. One of the first things he used to tell us in men's fellowship was the challenges he was having at that time. Now, I heard those things, but I never walked away thinking, man, that guy is really weak. No. I was impressed. Now, I've never told him that. No, seriously. Because it takes strength to say, you know what? I'm vulnerable. It takes an assurance of knowing your God to say, you know what? This is happening. Yeah. But we've learned the whole things backwards. So I have an issue, I cover it. And the thing you cover is the thing that will uncover you. It will. So Paul said, my goodness, I will boast. Not only will I boast, I'll take pleasure in my infirmities. I'll let you make fun of me because I know the more fun you make of me, my God is at work. You can make fun of me tonight, but he will turn the tables. And he will have the last laugh. And when God laughs, it's going to be serious laughter. That's exactly what it is. We need to learn to walk in humility. Because in our weakness, then we become strong. In our weaknesses, the strength of God is perfected. This is the kingdom way. You you cannot change it. You cannot uh, uh, make it just... No, no, listen. If you're going to follow God, just follow him. Just just do what he says. That's the only way we're going to get a result. 
Amen? Amen. I'm going to just cut it there in righteousness. It's almost 8.30. I don't want to go to the next point, but I won't have time to, to address it. We'll pick it up there from there tomorrow night. But, but, but are, you here? Are, you, are you getting this stuff? Do you, are you learning how to walk in grace? <laughs> Three people saying yes. <laughs> the rest of you guys, I mean, do I need to start all over again? <laughs> Humility. Is a, listen, that's the way Jesus defeated the devil. God is not telling us to do something he has not done. How weak was it for Jesus to go on the cross? Naked. What kind of humiliation was that? The God of creation. To be subjected to that kind of treatment. Snaring, beating, and spitting on him. And he didn't fight back. Because he knows. He knows. That that's what God will use to turn the table around. And that's what exactly what's happened. Amen? So Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We bless your name, Lord God, that you are teaching us. Not just to hear the word of God, but how to receive the word and how to make it, uh, practice it in our lives. And so, Father, I thank you that the word has been given. It not, will not fall on deaf ears. But, God, the seed of your word will bring forth the harvest and the result that you desire. Thank you, Father God. We honor and we bless you. We leave this place tonight strengthened as we walk in humility, total, complete dependence on you as our resource. Understanding that our sufficiency is not from us. And so, Father, we thank you. Our eyes are upon thee. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.